According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you will, in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 34 this morning. Isaiah 34. Continuing our week-by-week, chapter-by-chapter roller coaster through the book of Isaiah. The purpose of this series is to teach 66 chapters in 66 weeks and then to follow it up with 52 weeks of Jeremiah. And uh, so far, the Lord has allowed for that pace to continue. And uh, I have appreciated it and been blessed in the process. I know there's so much more we can come back to. And I'd love to, if the Lord tarries long enough, to spend 20 years in the book of Isaiah and uh, get all the meat out of this, out of this powerful, powerful prophet. But as it stands, our assignment today is chapter 34, 17 verses to cover and uh, in a short time to do so. Before we get started, let's ask the Father's blessing upon our time together for a setting aside of distractions and for humility to receive the word implanted that is able to save our soul. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness, Father, that is manifest again and again and again beyond anything that we could ask or think. Father, we thank you for the eternal truth of your word that will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you set it. And that includes this time right here, right now, with these brothers and sisters that have assembled together. You have a purpose for sending forth this message. And we are eager, Father, to receive it, to trust it, to plant it within our souls, to let it dwell richly within each one of us, that, Father, it might spring forth and bear fruit when called upon in the day of application. I thank you again in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all that it contains hear, and the world and all that springs forth from it. So it's a pretty universal message, if you'll notice. It is addressing everybody. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. Okay, we've got a whole hour of this coming up, so get ready. It's going to be bloody. We've got, uh, we've got the tribulation we're going to be learning about here this morning, what's called the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation of Israel, a day of the wrath of Lord God Almighty, a day unlike any other day, a day that has never come like it before, and a day will never come like it since. This is a unique day in the plan of God, and this is what we're dealing with here in the 17 verses of this chapter. There's actually a bridge in verses 16 and 17 that carries it across into chapter 35 where we're going to take a look at the millennium. Next week we get to look at blessings in the millennium from chapter 35. And if you think we can get to blessings without discipline, then you've bought into Satan's lie. You cannot have the cross before the crown. You cannot have the victory before the struggle. And the issues in the plan of God mean that we have to go through our time of testing before we can shine forth in glory, as that is our resurrection glory and the rewards that we have for us. So 
We've got to cover chapter 34 in tribulation, and then we can get to chapter 35 in uh, millennial glory. Even the outline of these chapters, I think, helps to provide for a dispensational structure. It helps to give us the sequence of uh, tribulation followed by uh, the, uh, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ in that regard. It's a very tough sequence of chapters to deal with if you're going to try to defend a post-millennialism or try to defend a post-tribulational rapture or any other of the bad approaches to eschatology. How many Christians are out there trying to make this world a better place by ushering in the kingdom so that we can hand it to Jesus when he gets here? No, we are not bringing in the kingdom, not even close. Things are getting worse, and they will keep getting worse until such time as the Lord takes us home. And I uh, hope we understand the, the uh, aspects of it there. All right, um, where did I leave off? Dead bodies in uh, verse 3, okay? Corpses everywhere. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. All right, so let's start with this and get some points of study. Nations, peoples, the earth, and the world. This is the audience for this call to worship. This is the audience to pay heed to what it is that is being uh, announced in this chapter. Nations, peoples. That's kind of a, it's not totally redundant because they are different expressions for what we're dealing with, but it becomes a comprehensive outline. The earth and the world, <laughs> all right? You say, well, isn't that the same thing? What are we talking about here, all right? Distinctions to be found, and I hope we, uh, we can identify with this when we understand uh, not only humanity, but angelity, the visible realm, the invisible realm, when we understand uh, the distinction between nations and peoples, there are peoples that don't have a nation. All right, right now the Kurds don't have a nation, but they are a people within other nations, Turkey and Iraq and Syria and, and uh, Iran, for example. We have people groups in this country, the Cherokee, for example, but they've lost their nation in different capacities there. Anyway, the Bible addresses both nations and peoples, the earth and the world, all of whom are called to attention as the Lord's global and universal judgment is declared. Not just a global judgment, a universal judgment. It spans all of the created realm, including the stars, the galaxies, the the heavenly places, when the hosts of heaven will wear away. Why do the sun, moon, and stars go dark in the tribulation? Why do the stars fall from the sky in the tribulation? Doesn't that seem rather destructive in the Milky Way galaxy? (laughs) Doesn't that seem like it's going to be kind of tough for the fabric of the physical universe? Well, of course, but that's what our God is free to do. He's the creator of our physical universe in different aspects there. So we'll take a look at this. First of all, we understand that it is a comprehensive call, and it actually is an echo of the comprehensive call that began this book way back in chapter 1 and verse 2. This comprehensive call echoes the call which began the book of Isaiah. In some ways, this is the beginning of the wrap-up for the first 39 chapters, if you will. And of course, we don't teach the, the multiple author heresy that you know, supports a, a Deutero-Isaiah or a Trito-Isaiah or all these other this foolishness. We talked about that. There's one Isaiah, and he wrote all 66 chapters, and uh, Jesus cited from, uh, from all the portions of Isaiah and assigned it all to Isaiah. So we're good with that. Um, but this is a recap of how the book actually started, and it's a beginning to wind down those first 39 chapters, to prepare the way for chapters 40 and following, all right? And uh, 
different things there. Uh, You might remember as the the book began, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so there was a heaven and earth call to worship that began the book. Here we have a heaven and earth call to worship that is grabbing everybody's attention because he has something to tell them. He is not happy. The Lord's indignation is against all the nations. Not only does this echo the beginning of the book, but it actually recalls Psalm 24.1, as we made comment of that as well in the introduction to chapter 1, the great Davidic psalm in Psalm 24. Take a look at that real quickly as we move through this. I understand any Sunday is rushed, but Communion Sunday is extra rushed as we work our way through this. I am so eager to get, uh, if we can, um, bring Ralph and Dorothy Braun down and and it looks like November will be the time frame for that. But Because um, recently, Ralph has been working on uh, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. And working on these three psalms as a unit. Working them in a sequence with respect to the Christ on the cross. And, and of course, the Lord is my shepherd. And then the millennial glories of, of Psalm 24. And uh, this is what we look at here. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So there's a difference between the earth and what it contains and the world and those who reside there, those who dwell there. And when you do New Testament studies in terms of cosmos, we understand what the cosmos is about, what the arrangement is about between humans and angels and the unfolding plan of God. More than just the real estate, more than just the planet and the, and the uh, terrestrial inhabitants. For he has founded upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? All right, the, one of the main applications for this world and all that contains in it and all who inhabit it is to search for all of the inhabitants of the earth and find who is worthy to ascend from this earth and take his place with God the Father in the heavenly places. And here's the short answer, none of us, okay? We don't measure up. We are not worthy. The only one who is worthy is the one who first came down, who was with the Father in heaven and then humbled himself, emptied himself, took the form of a man, walked the walk that we walk on this earth. He is the one who is worthy. And so answering the rhetorical question here of who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And we have a description here of Jesus Christ, the one who has earned this, the one who has deserved this, and the one who imputes these kind of, this, this kind of righteousness to our account so that we can claim that we have clean hands and a pure heart, right? Don't we have clean hands and a pure heart? Only because he makes us to have clean hands and a pure heart, see, because of what he himself has earned and deserved and accomplished on our behalf. All right. Um, Anyway, the psalm goes on and uh, he, in verse 5, shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face Jacob, and the remarkable promise of what will happen when all of Israel shall be saved. How through tribulation, through literally hell on earth, the Jewish people are going to accept their Messiah and they will enter into the millennial glories. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? 
And finally, the Jewish people are going to acknowledge Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. They're going to acknowledge the Christ, the, the Jesus whom they crucified. This is the King of glory. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Oh, it's a fun psalm, okay? Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. All right, well, there. Is Psalm 24. And this is, this is the, uh, the, the basis of Scripture that is echoed now in the introduction here of Psalm of uh, Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear. Let all the earth and all it contains hear, that the wor- and the world and all that springs from it. The armies of every nation are devoted to destruction. The armies of every nation. And I want to stress here the idea of this as a global war. And we've had a couple of occasions in the history of the 20th century that we called World War, right? World War I and World War II. And uh, those are nothing compared to what Israel will be dealing with in the tribulation because it will be every nation on the face of this earth against the Jewish people. Every nation on the face of this earth, including flag-waving America, should America still be here by then, uh, every nation on the face of the earth will be aligned against Israel. So this is not a localized judgment. This is not a particular nation like Assyria or Babylon or Persia. It is not a limited judgment against a single empire that is afflicting the Jewish people. It is a global judgment. All the earth is being called to attention. Every nation and every people is being, uh, of course it's the nations that have the armies, every nation and the armies that are arrayed against Israel are coming under judgment. Now, the uh, devoted to destruction. We see it here. We see it in Jeremiah 25. We see it in Joel chapter 3. The unimaginable carcass aftermath, (laughs) right? Bodies as far as the eye can see. Blood that rises to the horse's bridle for a, a radius of 200 miles. The unimaginable carcass aftermath when the God of heaven has to summon the birds of the earth to try to consume all the flesh that is being destroyed uh, on this occasion. It is something extraordinary to try to uh, wrap your mind around, okay? Um, you know, we've, Hollywood does what it can to try to portray, you know, uh, war on a massive scale, you know, some of the gladiator movies or some of the you know lord of the rings with all the orcs rushing in all the you're watching thousands and thousands of of uh, and that's my kind of movie but thousands and thousands of uh, of uh, creatures that are getting heads chopped off and things like that but everything that hollywood can imagine i don't think even comes close to what the great tribulation of israel is going to be like to what the, the the day of the wrath of the lord god almighty is going to be like so we have it uh, introduced here um preview of where we'll be in Jeremiah. Let me grab these very quickly. Jeremiah 25. And it is a longer section. 15 through 29. Maybe I'll just assign that to you as homework and you can read through it. But Jeremiah has to take a cup and travel around and cause the nations to drink it. And this is the cup of his wrath. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I am sending 
among them. The sword of the Lord, the sword that has to drink a lot of blood before it can finally be satisfied. And we'll see that. We'll see what it takes to satisfy, to satiate in Isaiah 34, 5. What does it take for the sword of the Lord to be satiated? All right, Joel 3, 9 through 14. Joel 3. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, where's Joel? Somebody stole Joel out of my Bible. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, there we go. If you get to Amos, you've gone too far. Joel 3, 9 through 14. More death, more doom and gloom. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Okay? Uh, The Lord's army is not exactly co-ed. It's not uh, one of those equal opportunity militaries like our feminized military today. All right, enough on that. Prepare war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Notice verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. That's backwards from what most people want, right? All the pacifists are trying to quote the other verse from Isaiah that says to, do, to disarm, to beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Well, you can't do that until this is done first. You cannot have peace until you have military victory. There will come universal global disarmament. It will come about because Jesus Christ will have conquered this earth. And he will end his enemy's armament against him. Until then, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak say, I am a mighty man. And uh, again, there's, uh, there's war here. Treading for the winepress of, of his wrath is in this passage. <clears throat> the overflowing vats are in this passage. He says in verse 13, Come and tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. You know, if the vat is that full, we better start stomping. We've got to start stomping now. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Look, sun, moon, and stars right there in verse 15, Joel 3:15. The sun and moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. <clears throat> the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. This, this, the Armageddon campaign is going to be both human and angelic. It's going to be visible and invisible. The warfare will take place on both fronts. Okay? Are we we're used to that, that terminology, right? We talk about a two-front war or a two-theater war. In, uh, in, the, in World War II, it was Europe and the Pacific. Well, in Armageddon, it'll be visible and invisible. It'll be the human scope of operations and the angelic scope of operations. All right. So there's Jeremiah, there's Joel. We want to get some more blood and carcasses and so forth. Um, Zechariah 14 is a good place for that. There's where the uh, great uh, the birds are invited to come and feast. Revelation 14 is good for that, and uh, Revelation 19 as we see the the Lord's victory. Uh, I, I encourage these. These are good passages. Uh, it's good to know that we win, right? It's good to know that uh, as as terrible as things get. Uh, and by the way, by the time you and I get there, we will already be in resurrected, glorified bodies. You and I will already be immortal. Can you imagine? How fun is combat going to be when you can't die, when you can't even get injured? Think about that, okay? I mean, I, I went to Desert Storm. I was in a war years ago, but I wasn't immortal in that war, okay? And think how fun this is going to be. I'm looking forward to it. All right. <clears throat> in any event, uh, I'm... 
I'm going to pass by that for now. Let's, uh, I'll sign that on a homework basis. Read Zechariah 14. Read about the, the carcasses. Read about the invitation of the birds to come and dine and feast and the tremendous death that will occur in the tribulation of Israel. Revelation 14, Revelation 19. And you get a good, <clears throat> a good picture of that. Understand, though, that the warfare transcends the human realm and there is significant angelic engagements, significant angelic engagements, I believe, not only on the sphere of this planet, but even throughout the galaxies as we see the, uh, the stars that are going to fall and the effect of what's going to take place there. If you want more on this, Jesus prophesied of this in Matthew 24 and verse 29. It was a part of his uh, Olivet Discourse, on the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Uh, in verse 29. It's spoken of again in Revelation 12 in a a powerful panorama chapter that deals with the warfare that's going to take place there. Michael and his angels are going to be waging war against Satan and his angels. And the invisible realm of this warfare that will take place among the, uh, the angelic beings of this universe. Secondly, though, as we look at verses 5 through 8, My sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. That's a whole doctrinal concept right there that we ought to take the time to develop and we just can't, all right? Devoted to destruction, placed under the ban, dedicated for the Lord and his own glory, which means he doesn't want you to plunder it. You can't be like Achan and steal a silver cup and go bury it in your in your tent like he tried to find a little trophy at the Battle of Jericho, right? And he tried to plunder a little bit of booty, a little bit of loot for himself, all right? This is not a warfare for booty. There will be booty. The booty, the plunder will be the whole planet when Jesus Christ rules this place. Uh, but as far as getting rich on the combat operations, no. This, this uh, people, in this case, all the peoples, the nations, the present order of things is being brought to an end. And the armies, that is the standing armies, those in the field, those that have taken up arms against the Jewish people, they are devoted to destruction, absolutely dedicated to destruction. And so it is there in verse 5. Uh, in verse uh, 2, it says, given over to slaughter. In verse uh, Five, it says, devoted to destruction. And that's the language throughout the Old Testament pertaining to the ban, what God places under the ban. That means it's His, His alone, your hands off. It's not for you to plunder, it's for Him to destroy. And there it is. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats. It actually is a priestly function as this takes place. The sword of the Lord conquers with devastating effect. The sword of the Lord conquers with a devastating effect. And it's interesting. There have been different Christian groups over the years that have used the sword of the Lord as a part of their uh, imagery. Uh, there's, you know, there's a sword of the Lord newsletter we used to get in the mail. There's a sword of the Lord. It's a publication of uh, Southern Baptist. Somebody publishes that sword of the Lord newspaper. Uh, there's, there's other organizations that have used sword of the Lord in times past. I, I find it unfortunate. And I think it's a maladjustment to prophecy. I think it's a, it's a, it fails to distinguish between Israel and the church. Uh, we are uh, the church is not a sword bearing conquering institution. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, the sword is uh, spoken of in the New Testament is the sword we submit to as we in Romans thirteen we submit to kings and rulers and those in authority. 
It is human government that executes the sword in our stewardship. We have no New Testament mandate to take up the sword and conquer the world for Christ. Okay, Different groups have attempted that over the years and crusades and whatever else. Uh, we're not here to, to evangelize by the sword. Okay, But the sword of the Lord application is God himself rescuing Israel in the tribulation, in fact, judging Israel to start with, and rescuing Israel in the tribulation and bringing in the uh, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. All right, have I gotten down to verse 8 yet? I have not. I stopped with, sated with fat in verse 6, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and great slaughter in the land of of Edom. What is this Edom about? We've seen Edom a couple of times. We've seen Basra here. What's this? What's going on? And why, if this is warfare, why is it spoken of as a sacrifice, as a sweet-smelling savor, as an aroma that goes up before the Father's throne? There's different sacrifices that can take place uh, and different divine activities that he views sacrificially. The work of Christ on the cross was his sacrifice. This is likewise his sacrifice. Wild oxen will fall with them and young bulls and strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. Okay, He did not come in first advent for wrath. That's second advent. Understand that. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of payback, of recompense for the cause of Zion. And this is God in His righteousness who brings His righteous recompense. And you'll note, recompense awaits for second advent. If you want payback today, you're carnally minded trying to inflict your own payback. Recompense comes at second advent. For the Christian in the church age, recompense comes at the rapture of the church. We get caught up in the clouds. We get to go to be with the Lord in the, in the, in the air Recompense is, comes with the coming of the Lord. Payback is not until then. See, we presently live in the age of grace. And uh, as much as you might want to um, shatter your enemies, right? To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentations of their women. That is not our place in the church age. All right? Much rather, wouldn't it be great if your greatest enemy on planet Earth got saved, received eternal life, became a disciple of the Word of God, started to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a testimony to glory that would be, okay? Because you didn't drive a sword through his gut when you had the chance, all right? So what are we saying? We're saying that this day of vengeance and recompense is the Lord's timing and he brings it about, not us. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Why? Because he's the only one with the integrity and character and capacity to inflict that kind of recompense without going carnal, like you and I would go carnal, first chance we got trying to exercise some kind of a righteous recompense. We, we couldn't do it, all right? But he can, and he does, because he's the one that went to the cross to redeem us from all these things. Now, why is Basra mentioned here? What's going on with Basra? The military operations into and out of Basra. There's, an, there's a campaign going in or an engagement going in and there's an engagement coming out. The military operations into and out of Basra will be f- featured engagements in the Armageddon campaign. 
featured engagements in the Armageddon campaign. See, it's mythology. It's a bad understanding of Armageddon from Revelation that just views it as one single battle. As if Jesus comes back from heaven, uh, he lands on the Mount of Olives, and then one battle later at Armageddon, everybody's dead, and we win, and here comes the millennium. There's actually going to be a prolonged campaign, the Armageddon campaign, with several theaters of operation, with several separate engagements. And there's an engagement that goes into Basra, and there's an engagement that comes out of Basra. Because it's when he's coming out of Basra that people are looking at at him in his garments stained in blood and, and are commenting upon how he has tread the wrath, the fierce wrath of the winepress of the Almighty. So there are engagements going in and engagements coming out. Very smart of the Lord, of course. <laughs> Anyone will tell you if, you, if you've got a plan to go in, make sure you've got a plan to get back out again on, on the other side of it. All right, You don't just want to go in with a one-way operation and have no plan for ending it and getting out. The Lord's got a, an engagement going in and an engagement coming out. And we see this here. And I went ahead and listed down through verse 10. I kept going back and forth in my mind whether I wanted to leave, end it at verse 8 or take it down to verse 10. And then in chapter 63, it's going to come back again. We've got another reference to Basra in chapter 63. Isaiah 63. So stay tuned. This is about, what, 27 weeks from now? Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? Who is this, right? Why do the scripture keep asking all these who is this questions, like in Psalm 24? Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his appearance, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled <clears throat> on my garments as I stained all my raiment. All right, there's more. Uh, there's the day of vengeance again in verse 4, the year of redemption. In verse 5, I looked and there was no one to help. I looked and there was no one to help. You ever think about that? I looked through heaven to find a Savior, and there was none. There was only one who's qualified. So I was astonished. There was no one who could uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. My wrath upheld me. Anyway, there's, there's a lot there. There'll be more in Jeremiah 49. There's more in the book of Amos. All right? Amos. So I thought he was a minor prophet. Who cares what he had to say, right? We put these all together. There was a complete campaign, and no single prophet had the entire picture. If you want more on this, I can definitely recommend uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, his Messianic Bible Studies. All right, I recommend in the, uh, number four of the, of the Messianic Bible Study Collection. Arnold Fruchtenbaum's material on the Armageddon campaign is very worthwhile. And every time I get rusty on it, every time I forget, oh, what, which came first? What you know was, is it is it Basra first? Is it Mount Olivet first? Is it you know? The, I, I can go pull up Arnold and say, well, what, how did Arnold put this together? Okay, very, very worthwhile. It's even available in Logos if you uh, put it in your Logos Bible software collection. You can even make it larger. How about that? For the back row commandos that insist on 
larger text. All right? And and not to teach this this morning. We don't have time to teach this this morning. But you get the idea, just scanning through the, the table of contents, the assembling of the allies of Antichrist, the second stage is the destruction of Babylon, the third stage is the fall of Jerusalem, fourth stage is the armies of Antichrist at Basra. Ah, now we're talking Basra, right? There's a connection with what we're looking at today. Uh, the fifth stage is the national regeneration of Israel. Remember, all Israel shall be saved. The national confession of Israel, the plea of Israel. They have to call out for their Christ to save them. He cannot come until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The sixth stage is the second coming of Messiah. And wow, I didn't realize there were so many steps to that. Isaiah 34, Isaiah 63, Habakkuk 3, Micah 2, Judges 5. The seventh stage is the battle from Basra to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Judgment. And then the eighth stage, the victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. All right, so there's the outline as Arnold Fruchtenbaum put that together. And until such time as I do my own homework and put my own stuff together, I'm going to keep using Arnold's stuff. I think it's, I think it's good stuff. All right, so there's the sword of the Lord. Thirdly, verses 9 through 15, third portion of this chapter, the theater of war will become a demonic haunt throughout the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. This theater of war will become a demonic haunt throughout the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And here's verses 9 through 15, and that's, I think that's best to put the division between verse 8 and verse 9. All right. Becomes a demonic haunt. Here's the aftermath of human and angelic warfare. You ever think about such a thing? Can we, can we visualize the aftermath of a war like this? Because not only do you have human corpses lying on, you know, dead humanity laying everywhere, what's the aftermath in the demonic realm? What's the aftermath in the angelic realm? What are the consequences of all the spiritual warfare that's going on in addition to the physical warfare that's going on? Well, so I never even gave that a thought before. Well, Scripture did. All right, Scripture is described in a lot of different places. It's almost like, uh, if I can draw a bit of an analogy, it's almost like um, various scenarios where uh, military planners have tried to conduct nuclear war and then tried to chart... In, in the in the war gaming of, of strategy and planning of that of, 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 of uh, a small scale nuclear war and then trying to determine what territories are now radiated what territories are now uninhabitable how many thousands of years will it be before humanity can ever go back into into this place again you know and and, and so forth all right um, things like that trying to estimate well what's the what's the fallout what's the radioactive fallout of a of a low-yield nuclear blast over Austin, for example. And, and how long is that territory going to remain uninhabitable because of, the, because of the nuclear explosions? Well, similar to that, only much more realistic, is the demonic haunts of what will take place through the millennial reign of Jesus Christ because much of the world is going to be restored to an Eden-like condition. Jerusalem will be paradise on earth, and the agriculture of Israel is going to be unbelievable in the, in the yield of, of, of vegetables and, and grains and wine. And the, the actual 
agricultural production. We'll see that next week. That's in chapter 35. There's a lot of millennial uh, agriculture that would just make a, you know, a modern farmer drool uh, in, in terms of what they can look forward to in blessing. But it's not the whole planet that's going to be that way. Much of the planet is going to be a wasteland. Much of it, they're going to be zones. Damascus, for example, is one. Here we see another one, Basra. These are going to be zones that are going to be uh, no-go territory for, for humanity because they are given over to, to the haunts, okay? Real haunts. I'm not talking, you know, again, Hollywood make-believe of the haunted house kind of a thing. And, and No, I'm talking real spiritual reality haunts. The, the venues whereby the fallen angels and the demons are going to be ensnared. They're going to be trapped. They're going to be bound to these locations, like Satan is going to be bound in the abyss. His, his, uh, his venue will be the abyss for the thousand years. But every fallen angel and every demon is going to be sealed off somewhere in a variety of these prisons, a variety of these demonic haunts, which we see described here and we see in a variety of other passages as well. So it talks about in verse 9, its streams will be turned into pitch. Yeah, that's kind of bad. <laughs> okay, if your uh, if your stream is 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 uh, toxic and flammable, and um, it's loose earth into brimstone. Yeah, good luck plowing that. You put the you turn the the, the dirt with a plow and and it ignites. Okay, uh, sparks start hitting when you when the plow hits the burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. Okay? And so we have a description here of a polluted territory that's not fit for human habitation. But it is a, a, a residence. It is a habitat for these creatures that are mentioned here. And um, different things. And if, you, if all you do is insist on reading this in a purely zoological fashion and reading this in terms of animals, uh, you're going to be very limited in your understanding of what's really happening here. Pelicans and hedgehogs, right? Um, But it says, pelicans and hedgehogs will possess it. An owl and raven will dwell in it. Not just a possession, but a dwelling. And he will stretch over it the line of desolation. What's desolation about? And the plumb line of emptiness. Oh, there is so much doctrine here. I wish we could stop and spend weeks on this. You know what we're dealing with here? We're dealing with the Tohu Wabohu of Genesis 1. The desolation of Basra. It's going to be surveyed. You ever go out with a survey, with a, with a measuring tape or a plumb line? Okay. There's a straight line and there's a plumb line. First one's the straight line. He will stretch over it the line of desolation. That's for measuring uh, linear distance. And then the plumb line. Usually dropped uh, gravity from top to bottom and then uh, you measure something's level status with the plumb line. Anyway, all the dimensions are covered here because both lines are employed. He's stretching over it the line of Tohu as well as the plumb line of Bohu. Okay? If that doesn't mean anything to you, then read Genesis 1-2 sometime. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu wabohu, formless and void. And darkness was brooding over the surface of the deep. And the Lord God said, 
let there be light, and there was light. There's the tohu wabohu destruction of, of uh, Genesis 1-2. It's actually narrated in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23. So stay tuned. We'll have that in our Jeremiah series. We have the narrative of the angelic warfare, the destruction of the angelic, the angelic cities that take place there. And so there's a whole lot more going on um, than just simply pelicans and hedgehogs. Okay? We're not talking about, okay, there was a war here, and now animals make it their den. Much more than that. In fact, some of these descriptions defy a zoological application. It's nobles. Are those the pelican nobles or the hedgehog nobles? How, how do these animals have nobles? Well, the angels do, the demons do. There are ranks, there are principalities and powers. There is a hierarchy and a structure. All right, there is no one there whom they may proclaim king. All its princes will be nothing. See, even their angelic overlords are going to be locked away. Satan is locked away. So the demons have no ruler over them. That For a while, they had the king of the abyss that was over them that was leading them in the war. Not for the millennium. They have no more leadership. They're all in prison for the millennial kingdom. Uh, thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves, the hairy goat. These are the satyrs of mythology. Uh, the night monster. Uh, we're talking Lilith, if you know any mythology or demonism of, of Lilith. will settle there and find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there and will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, hawks will be gathered there, every one with its kind. All right. Well, in the second section, I recommended Arnold Fruchtenbaum and the great material that's available there. In this section, I'll go ahead and recommend myself. The, uh, the ABC Angelology series that we did back in the Second Corinthians material. The uh, Austin Bible Church Angelology series spotlighted this chapter for these demonic references. And it's available on the website, minding its own website business. You can go get the PDF, see all these demonic terms, uh, all these creatures. And uh, if you want to even review the MP3 files and listen to the lessons as we examined this chapter and other chapters uh, pertaining to the, uh, the demons in this application. All right. Desert creatures. See, the thing about these wildernesses, the thing about waterless places, the thing about these demons that are disembodied, that are trapped in their waterless places, okay? They want to go back. They want to go back and occupy a human again. They want to find the rest within a bodied form. Anyway, there's more to that, and I don't have time today. <laughs> So we've got to wrap it up. The transition from wrath to rest. In other words, from chapter 34 to chapter 35. The transition from wrath to rest. The transition from tribulation to millennium. Hinges on an admonishment to search the Scriptures. Verses 16 and 17 here forms a bridge or a transition from wrath to rest. It forms the transition material from the wrath of chapter 34 
to, oh my, the glories of chapter 35. We've got to understand them both. We want to study both. We want to see how it comes together. We can't just pick and choose the verses we like and the verses we don't like. I think uh, the, the rabbis were guilty of that. I think the, they, they poisoned their own understanding of the Messiah because of the, the confusion over the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And I think that uh, the, the glories is what preached well, <laughs> right? And that's what a Jewish person wanted to think about anyway, was conquering Rome and having a kingdom and, and uh, all the glories of the millennium. But the, the suffering of the Christ, the, the, the shame of the Messiah, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or any of the, Isaiah 34, any of the, any of the passages of judgment and wrath, and that, uh, those were tough passages to deal with. And I think they came under neglect came under total neglect by the, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees and Bible teachers of, of our Lord's generation. Well, we've got to understand them both. And the idea that you can get to the second one without the first one is satanic. The idea that, well, there's shortcuts. The idea that this is what Satan promised Jesus the kingdom, didn't he? He said, bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms and all their glory. And you know what Satan was really saying was, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. Oh, the Father, that, that plan is horrible. Here's, I got a better plan. All right? Here's my plan. And it doesn't, it doesn't include a cross. It doesn't include a suffering. It doesn't include wrath. It doesn't include any of that. Easy. It doesn't cost you anything. Just bow down and worship me. See how seductive that is? You see how humans swallow that all the time. Oh, you mean there's no consequences? Oh, you mean I can have all this fun and there's no, there's no consequences or responsibility? Or Oh, you mean God commanded that, but He didn't really mean it? Or He was just being mean? Or He was just keeping me from having fun? I can, I can have all this? And all i got to do is quit worshiping God the Father and start worshiping you? Well, sign me up, okay? How much of humanity takes that? They take that offer because they think, hey, it doesn't cost anything. And they don't realize it costs them everything. The compromise, the price you pay when you, when you sell your soul to the devil. Jesus, thankfully, had none of that. <laughs> Jesus said, no, no, no. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He quoted Deuteronomy and he passed all three of his temptations there in the wilderness by quoting Scripture. Why do you think this bridge from tribulation to millennium means they better start searching the scriptures? How do you think the saints in the tribulation are going to survive the tribulation? They're going to search the scriptures. They're going to learn a thing or two about Basra. They're going to learn a thing or two about running when they see the abomination of desolation. They're going to learn a thing or two from the Word of God. And we can be thankful for that. So seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate, for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. See, there's a huge context break between 15 and 16, and it's unfortunate that looking at the word mate and trying to relate it back to the, the animals in the earlier verses, I think, is, is where folks get lost. Um, no, the, the mate is, is the Scriptures. The mate is what's promised and what's fulfilled. The mate is the fulfillment of everything God said was going to happen. He has cast the lot for them, his hand by, and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they will dwell in it. So this is the bridge that carries 
the tribulational believers across in a right understanding of things and prepares them for the millennial kingdom. I love these imperatives. Seek and read. Seek and read. What a contrast. Remember the chapter began with hear and listen. Right? Chapter began with hear and listen. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O people. So there's hear and listen to the verbal message of Isaiah 34. But here, in this verse, there is seek and read. Seek from the book of the Lord and read. It's a different audience. It's a different context. It's a whole different application. See, the, uh, the unbelievers that are marching in the armies against Jerusalem, they're going to hear the message of Isaiah 34 when God's wrath goes forth. But the remnant of believers who have insight that shine brightly in the end times, they're going to seek and they're going to read. And so the imperatives are seek and read. Understand, those who have insight will shine forth in the end times. Daniel even promises this, that there are things in our scriptures we are not going to grasp. But the tribulational saints will. It will unfold to them. The Holy Spirit will unveil it to them. They will have an illumination in the tribulation that we've never seen in the church age with our very own scriptures. And the reason why is because they're, again, going to have prophetic agency in the tribulation. They'll have two great witnesses in Revelation 11. They will have prophetic office in terms of the 144,000. There's going to be a lot going on. And they will have insight. Daniel 12, verses 3 and 4. I love this. Daniel. The last chapter of Daniel, Daniel 12. And Daniel's a lot like me and a lot like you and a lot of, a lot of folks. And, and whatever answers he gets, it just gives him four more questions and he wants more answers. And so he gets two more answers and that gives him four more questions and he wants more answers. And eventually, you get to the point, the Lord says, that's all the answers you're getting. Okay? Daniel 12, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone found written in the book will be saved or will be rescued. God will rescue the believers, the remnant, the believers of the Jewish people in the the great tribulation. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to a disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the group there in Daniel 12.3. They're the ones that are going to read and study. They're the ones that are going to apply Isaiah 34.16. They're going to study, they're going to read, and they're going to shine forth in their generation. And they're going to lead this remnant while everything else is being unleashed on earth. And then Daniel 12, 4, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Conceal. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Okay? That's what they have to look forward to. Every scripture must be fulfilled. Not one will be missing and not one will lack its mate. 
Not one will be missing and not one will lack its mate. I think that's the better understanding here of verse 16 and 17 rather than trying to go back and find mates for the animal creatures in the previous paragraph. Okay? In other words, there is what was spoken and there's the fulfillment of it. There's the prophecy and there's its mate, the completion of it. And this is what Jesus taught his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. In Luke chapter 24, he said, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Everything spoken of me must be fulfilled. That's why I don't like the term fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. They're all going to be fulfilled. So we have the already fulfilled in historical past and the not yet fulfilled, but promised to they will be fulfilled in the prophetic future. All right. There's no such thing as an unfulfilled prophecy if God himself made the prophecy. They will all be fulfilled. So Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, also verse 44 of the same chapter. But I'm just out of time. All right. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the book of Isaiah. I ask that we might be humble before it. I ask that we might recognize that there is so much. This prophet understood things in the visible realm, in the invisible realm. He saw seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy before your throne. He, um, your, the prophet Isaiah was given the great virgin birth prophecy of chapter 7, the great wonderful counselor prophecy, and all of these things. He's given the great Isaiah 53, suffering servant. So many things, Father. The whole Bible, I believe, can be taught in the book of Isaiah and, and uh as Hebrews 11 says, men of whom the world was not worthy. Even the, the great revelations given to Isaiah was simply a foreshadowing of things yet to come. And as we understand it, he suffered martyrdom. This prophet uh, was sawn in two. And uh, Father, I just thank you. We're getting glimpses. Um, the work that he did all those years ago is still bearing fruit today. We're blessed today because your servant Isaiah was faithful back then. Father, I ask that you would take hold of this teaching and make it real to each one of us. Open the eyes of our understanding. Make clear to us, Father, what are the right divisions of the word of truth. We're to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to keep straight, Father, what is the church? What is Israel? What is the rapture? What is the second advent? What is tribulation? What is millennium? And what comes after the millennium? Father, uh, open our eyes to understand that presently, until such time as these haunts are created, we better have our armor on. We better have our sword in hand. We better be ready to engage the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and the powers. Teach us this truth, Father. And thank you that today can be just a small part of the whole counsel that we need to learn. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.